I'm here with Russell Emanuel, CEO of Bleeding Fingers Music and Extreme Music. I would love to find out what year did you start Extreme Music and how do you describe that period? Oh, wow. I hate to remember now, but 97 is when we started. We started in, um, in Camden Town, London, um, in not very salubrious settings. <laughs> Bootstrapping wasn't a word there, but if it was back then, but if it was, that's what we were doing. Um, and uh, yeah, 1997, it, 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 it actually really, I know people say this, but it's amazing that it really doesn't feel, feels like five years ago when I think about it. Just looking at your your roster of projects, it seems that that was a jumping off point for you potentially was looking at uh, maybe a need in the industry or what was what was your reaction or what was the in- yeah. inspiration to to create in, in, um, extreme music? Well, yeah. well, the inspiration to really was just not not to have a real job. Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, myself and my then partner, Dol- Dolph, Dolph Taylor, uh, who was the drummer in Stiff Little Fingers, that's, that's, uh, Stiff Little Fingers. Um, we really became very close friends as well. And, and we realized that if we didn't do something, we were going to spend the rest of our lives on a tour bus. And uh, I think it was eight, we'd been on the road on and off, but almost constantly for 18 years was a long time um and we're not talking about um aerosmith and rolling stones tour buses this is punk music (laughs) they were barely buses um but 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 yeah and and we were looking around for something to do oh yeah you look it wasn't a massive you know intelligent well-laid business plan it was really a a, a kind of an, an escape vehicle the thing I can say about that time period is it was a handful of years before the internet really became a, a real, you know, resource for people to even think about having music being delivered or streamed. It, it was a very uh, like B to B, very person to person industry of knowing those production houses, the music houses, the the studios. I can imagine that it was an opportunity for you to kind of step out and start to meet a lot of people. Oh yeah, they were, they were, they were hard yards. Um, you know, you were, it was one relationship at a time. And if you remember back then, we were still pressing CDs, and and they felt like a, an amazing techno technology techno, technology leap. Yeah, sure. Was, you know, was, uh, because you know, only a few years before it had been vinyl. Um, so. <clears throat> you know very hard yards compared to today today feels like luxurious you know you can have a you can have music live within within a few days of it being leaving the studio for someone who is in the position of running a business that was featuring composers and musicians were you able to wear both hats of running this business and also be a full-time composer how did you juggle the two um i thought i could (laughs) Long days. Yeah, um, I was kind of very used to long hours and and, and 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 juggling everything. You know, when you're when you're managing bands and tour managing and also producing. You know, I think a lot of people in this industry just learn to eat what they kill, uh, and it kind of, it, it nurtures that it nurtures that um, that that kind of um, work ethic. Um, and, I, you know, I started as a tape up in studio. So, you know, there was no going home. And I, that kind of has always lived me. I still, you know, I still do very long days. And sadly, you know, 
six, seven days a week. I mean, did, did you find at that time that the landscape for being a composer in that capacity was like there was less competition? Like, how, how would you describe the landscape at the time? <laughs> well, you have to remember production music was, was where composers go to die. I mean, it was, you know, to, t- to say we were bringing Unsexy back would be an understatement. <laughs> it was, you know, and there was no glory. And, and, uh, and I think that was a big driving force for us. But we, we <clears throat> for whatever reason, kind of identified, okay, we're going to do production music. Um, and, and I think uh, we saw an opportunity because it was so poorly serviced. And it really was, you know, I don't want to, I mean, obviously there are exceptions to this, but it really w- w- was an easy ride for a lot of people. They were doing sound-alikes. And when I say sound-alikes, you know, they change a chord here and there of, of popular hits and, and uh, it's amazing what they were getting away with, probably because there was no internet at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but <clears throat> I think what we kind of realized was we'd been producing for a long time. We had a lot of friends in the industry, a lot of friends in the same boat that we were in. It's like, what's next? Um, and if we could create a production music library that felt like a label that really cared about the music, that wasn't, you know, it, it felt very obvious um, that, that we could make a difference. And, and, you know, now people look back and go, oh, you're so clever. What a great idea. How did you? <laughs> it wasn't that at all. It just was just, we were probably very lucky, right time, right place. And it, you just had to look at it and go, there's an, there's an obvious there's an obvious open goal here. Did you find that like the reaction, like, because I remember walking into agencies and seeing the wall of CDs and being like very, very clear of like, you have to have the whole collection and there'd be new ones that would come out and they'd ship them to you. It was like, it was a very kind of like, this is what we have to offer. This is what like the current, like it's, it seemed like a very slow to respond type of way to release. It was, I mean, the real estate alone, you know, I don't know if a lot of these post houses were in, I was in London, so in Soho, expensive yeah. real estates with rooms, li- library rooms packed full of vinyl and CDs. I mean, it must have been costing them a fortune. And, you know, from our perspective as a new library company, um, you know, it would take six months from conceiving an album to producing it, to getting it out, to getting it printed. Inevitably, there'd be a couple of mistakes or, you know, and the, the album would have to go back to the plant. I mean, yeah, but it was it, it was a very slow, not only and I say not only slow for the industry, but slow for a composer to make any money. I mean, you can imagine yeah. his writing a track is probably three to four years away from seeing any revenue at all. And now that's dramatically changed now. Yeah. So at the time, how would you, looking back, how was there even a business model there to, I mean, because the extreme music has not gone away. It's it's a new evolution of it. It's doing, it's, it's continued to thrive, but uh, the landscape has changed. So at the time, what was the business model that, well, there was, I think you touched on it earlier is there was a lot less competition. Okay. And the barrier to entry then was, um, you know, you had to be able to afford to not only produce albums, create them, you had to print 10,000 of each one and then get them out there. So it was much more expensive to just get a new company off the ground. So without question, much less competition. Mm-hmm. Um, 
whereas today, you know, I, I should imagine uh, we're not luxury in that we don't have that luxury. But I should think there are now third-party aggregation companies that create software. We, you know, so you can see a lot of new, exciting companies come. We've been very lucky. We've always reinvented ourselves. It's been important to Extreme that every three years there's a reinvention. We, you know, we don't sit on our laurels and. Um, we're fortunate in, insofar as and I think it speaks to the start of the company, which was no compromise, absolutely no compromise when it comes to the music. Mm. Uh, and, and, and we're able to attract some incredible talent because of that. Yeah, I mean, the, I'm just looking here on your page. I mean, there's some heavy hitters, some Snoop Dogg, Junkie XL, Michael Giacchino, Quincy Jones. I mean, just to name. Yes. It just seems that not only being the first out there, but also providing a real, like a real quality solution. How can you even say after 20 years, almost, you know, 20 plus years later that you guys were able to maintain that vision and, and stay competitive? Like, yeah. like was it adapting to the technology? Was it like, what were those steps that helped that happen? I mean, we're <laughs> arrogance, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to do. You know, I think what drives myself and the people that work here is is a deep love of music you know so I've, and you know i see a lot of people come into the industry and business is really the driver for them um and that's i don't want it to sound like this is a hippie commune because it isn't you know we're here to keep the lights on and pay people and uh, uh, and uh, uh, you know most importantly pay composers and artists and, and talent um but if you are in business to be in business, then you heavy lift, you know, you generally, we see a lot of people racing to the bottom because they're just business at any price. We won't do that. We're a small catalog and we're intentionally small. We're very careful about what we had. And I like to tell people we're also reassuringly expensive and, 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 and we're reassuring you can't create great music. You, you, there are some shortcuts, but there aren't enough to be able to to giving music away free just for the back end or for a hundred dollar license for all you can eat for a year. You, right. Eventually that model means that you're having to acquire music for cheaply and therefore some poor composer is doing it for almost nothing. And I think we steer, we've st managed to, to maintain a position, steer away. It's important for us to be artist friendly. And hopefully that reputation has st stuck with us and we're known for quality. You guys also have really good uh, names and artwork. I'll give you that. I mean, <laughs> there's some, um, we'll get to the recent ones here in the Moog, Star Spangled Bangers. Yes. Uh, I, I just, I think I'd look at the artwork as much as I'd look at the track list. How, how would you find that the um, searching, finding new talent and keeping your li library interested? How did that relationship work and how does it continue to work? Because there are, thousands and thousands of composers out there who want their music to be represented how do you curate that experience and like how did you set the precedent for that well i mean we've got an amazing team that have grown up with the company and there's a lot of experience there and i don't know you know i think a lot of great talent finds us okay. um, it, but but as well don't underestimate the 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 composers and talent that work for for the catalog are also a great a and r resource because they're tapped in and now a lot of times they go hey there's this great guy or this guy you know <clears throat> um, who makes these incredible Frankenstein instruments that you may want you know I think they're a big part of the growth of this company 
So the thing was, is you started Extreme Music in, in 97, but something happened around, and you have to tell me the year exactly, but you wanted to create a new venture. You wanted to break off and create this thing called Bleeding Fingers Music. So yes. why and what was the difference of this approach? Um, well, well, Extreme is, create, you know, is a catalog of music that we can constantly create that preempts what people may need, um, you know, essentially a stock music library. Um, Bleeding Fingers is a custom music division. You know, this is clients coming and actually briefing us for shows. And so, and it was a groundswell, you know, it was an industry that we knew was out there, but we ignored for a long time okay. simply because we didn't understand it. Again, I'll remind you, there's no great mind here. <laughs> uh, we're stumbling through this, but, <clears throat> um, uh, you know, obviously we, 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 we'd known Hans and been um, in business with Hans and composers at remote control for a long time. And it, and I think we built, as you rightly pointed out, a kind of marketing expertise. Um, and we wanted to kind of see what else we could do with that. Um, and moving into the custom music space seemed like a kind of natural progression. Like we, we had the skills and we had the, and our clients who, you know, at the time, 15 years worth of clients, they're the same people using stock music as a, a need custom music. And, and, and some of it was a kind of groundswell from them. Um, so it wasn't a, you know, like the first decision, it was an easy decision. Um, but it was a kind of be careful what you wish for, because now I've got two jobs. Also to mention, there was an acquisition in yes. 2008, right, of, of Extreme Music? Well, no, well, actually, we sold Extreme Music um, to Viacom in 2005. Okay. Um, and then there was a subsequent deal between Viacom and so so Viacom sold the famous catalog and Extreme to Sony. To Sony, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, you but so, you still remain the the, the CEO throughout throughout that still still doing that. So what was I think that you know I listen to many many entrepreneurs and at some point they say I'm now I'm like I've outgrown this but yet obviously you you have not outgrown your love no. for music. So what was it about staying active with extreme music? What what was the opportunity? What was it about that relationship that you still wanted to stay involved with? I'm super lucky. You know, the thing is, I've had real jobs. I've sold car wax door to door, and <laughs> I know when I know when things are good. And yeah. uh, you know, I was a tape up for many years, and and I sold insurance, car insurance. Um, and the, having that in your background, you kind of know when something's great. And and extreme is great and fun every day. It remains to be fun. And I'm super lucky. I get all these great people to work with, and great composers, and incredible opportunities and bleeding fingers was just a further shot in the arm there's even more opportunities i mean we're working bleeding fingers is working on the biggest shows in the world it's incredible um so i come in every day i drive up where are you based i'm in the other bay area around the bay area so i drive up there's a there's a lincoln boulevard here on the way to work there's a guy every day on an intersection here that is spinning a sign working in a chicken suit <laughs> and try past that guy. Yeah, this is okay. I've got this okay. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the thing too is you. you I, mean, I still can't quite understand how you can be an active composer while running two big companies, but yet I'm sure you find the time. That balance must be really keeping one foot in the creative world for you. It, yeah. I mean, generally, I'll partner with other 
other composers, you know, it's, and, and take all the glory myself. But I'm very lucky. You know, I've got some great collaborators and, and they're super talented. So, you know, I'm generally not there in the middle of the night finishing the mix. Sure. Anymore. You've you've done that enough now. <laughs> I've done that enough, but 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 you know, but uh, you know that that that's the time I'm spending doing label copy or working with. We've got a great graphics team here, and all of that is enjoyable. Yeah, well, and how did the relationship form between uh, you and Hans, and and when did you move in with remote control and and be on base here? It's interesting, you know, my memory gets hazy, but. Uh, <laughs> We were very early on in the process back in Camden Town. I remember, you know, crappy offices and, uh, um, but making a bit of a stir in London. You know, it's, it was at the time of Ministry of Sound and there were lots of exciting things happening. Um, and we were being pretty irreverent. And, and, you know, Hans, as you know, although the maestro and the, the greatest composer in the world is a punk rocker at heart. Sure. And, um, Somehow he and he's always got his ears to the ground, and he somehow heard what we were doing at Extreme. And I remember getting a call, and um, Hans Zimmer's on the phone. And I have to be this is the first time I've actually told anyone this, but I actually didn't know really who he was. <laughs> I had a um, the only reason I really knew his name was because I had a sample CD, which they were at the time they were on CDs for sample, and it was Hans Zimmer guitars. Mm. So I think some great guitarists, you know, <laughs> um, but, um, <clears throat> you know, they, we, they invited us, him and his partner at the time, invited us out to L.A. And obviously arriving here, it was pretty apparent quickly that this was something incredible in the remote control um, campus is one of a kind. And uh, we just became kind of fast collaborators and friends, really. I think you guys have really created a wonderful template for what I think people always have, in my mind, referred to, which is creating a community for composers, for dialogue. Because the world is, nowadays, we're just stuck in our studio and we never have a chance to poke out and see each other at lunch or cross paths. What is the creative difference of having that community and having a roster of folks share a space like that? I think, I, I think it's, you know, it's, it, it's our unfair advantage. Um, collaboration amongst composers is, is an incredible um, accelerant, I think, um, because as you say, the, the the kind of natural path is it's a solitary path, um, and there, and and it works brilliantly, by the way. But I think it's, I think it's slow. You know, you're learning not only how to be a great composer, but how to take a brief and how to handle the politics of working on a show and deliveries and stuff. This kind of collaborative environment that we have here is something that amazes me every day and funny enough you know we just got back yesterday from a, a, a camping retreat we all went off and and and, and watching all these young composers who are, are exposed to these opportunities that we're bringing in a lot earlier in their career than they would do normally where they'd have to be an assistant for 10 years and wait for an opportunity wait for the yeah. wait for the composer to get sick one day and step in <laughs> And you know we've got like for example we you know we score The Simpsons and and um, um, and and you know watching Andrew who who I think is just thirty, watching him step up and really do incredible work on that is very gratifying and and you know we we have composers here twenty three twenty four working on incredible shows and 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 I think what Bleeding Fingers gives them is 
A, the power of collaboration. And ever, writer's block doesn't exist in that building. There's always someone they can go, another room they can go into. It gives them a breadth of, of, of creativity because there's always someone that can bring another skill to something, you know, to a project they're on or another view. And then we also, a part of the team is producers. Um, our goal is that by the time a client has heard a cue, they've already had rounds of notes from the production team here. And we consistently hear from Bleeding Fingers clients who go, wow, you know, we're really focusing on creative notes rather than, you know, micro the mistakes or little, you know, things. that. Slip. Anyway, I can babble on about this for ages. But in answer to your question, I think moving forward, collaboration is for composers has to be something they seek out. What in your mind is... Uh, something that separates others from the pack. What what stands out in today's world when accessibility of talent just seems endless? I know that's a that's a big big question. I mean, obviously, you know our big our our big hook here is Hans Zimmer, mm-hmm. um, and th- there's no other like him. And 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 he's kind of creative vision filters down throughout here and i think that's that's why it's always been this kind of hub and magnet for for new composers coming into the business and you, you know i think i think we, at the last count we have 51 studios here and then all wow. the related assistants and interns and people coming in it's an it's an incredible place it really is a, you know i've heard this before but referred to as the stanford of score and i think that's true <laughs> uh, we're also in a golden age of TV. There's an enormous amount of production happening. Long may it continue. I hope it does. There may be a, a slight reset, but but I think if you compare it to 10 years ago, there's so much more production that creates all of these opportunities. Um, and there's amazing, and, it, and, it's, and it's breeding an amazing new um, generation of talent. And we're proud of, we, you know, alone in our team, our team is, 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 um, is around 16 composers now being fingers. Um, five, soon to be six of those are female composers. That's great. Now that's something that wouldn't wouldn't have happened. You didn't hear about it, and those, you know, uh, uh, and they'll be role model. And I think we just haven't had enough female role models in, in the industry. That's changing dramatically, and and um, and and they're incredible, incredible composers. How do you build, uh, how do you manage that ebb and flow of expectation? Like when you look back at the end of a year, I, I only know like I do my taxes. I'm like, oh, that's how much work I did? Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's a good time. That's a good measure. <laughs> <laughs> For you, what can you say uh, of understanding that balance of yeah. the input-output, what your guys are capable of? Good good question. Not a big intelligent answer. Um, you know, cause, but, because... You know, we were amateurs five years ago at this, and we're learning as we go. We learn every day. I mean, and as you say, some of the projects we're working on are nine months to a year. The, the planet Earth projects, generally natural history, has a very long lead time. Um, and I think, um, and it, you know, I think interesting enough, what we what we struggled with was the project where that comes in and says, "Hey, we're gonna, we, you know, this will be delivered in two months." That cannot. That can stretch out for a long time. Yeah. Um, and 
you know, in this new in this new in this new world of digital aggregation, where the deadline can easily move, that creates its own. Deadline. I don't really have a great answer. We're just kind of winging it, in all honesty. I mean, uh, do you find? I mean, it's always the the timeline is going to be always moving around. But is it just a matter of doubling down when you have to get busy and you ramp up, or like? Well, don't you find it amazing that when you know when the shit hits the fan, you really can make. It's amazing yep. the amount of music you can actually produce. Mm. Um, you know, there's a general, there's a general two minutes of music a day rule. I think that we all in the industry adhere to. But I've seen people do a lot more. I mean, there are superheroes in that area. I remember doing a project here with with Lorne Balf, and uh, he's incredible. He's a machine, that guy. And I think he thinks a deadline is just a challenge for folks who are looking at you know, places to put their music, how can Bleeding Fingers or Extreme Music potentially be an answer for them or, or consideration? It's, um, it must be, it must be overwhelming um, and to make the right decisions, especially when you have, <clears throat> you know, so many of these kind of online libraries now where you can just upload music um, in a, in a, it would, you know, blindly upload it with no A and R process. And I mean, my guess is that's pretty empty calories. You know, I think from our point of view, what we like to see is the approach to us always is is compelling. Where it says, "Hey, I'm a great composer, but I'm amazing at this one thing." Okay. Because so many people, and I'm sure you've seen it as well, is these composers will write to you. Hey, I'm a great composer and I can do any styles. I can do jazz, I can do rock. Well, you know, then you're a jack of all trades. And mm-hmm. and that's essentially not very attractive. For me, it's, I'm incredible at, you know, dark baritone, you know, hardcore punk. I'm like, yes, then, then if you live and breathe it, it's going to be amazing. And I think it's important for us in anything we touch, even in scoring, so I've got this thing that nobody else can do. That's really what we're looking for. Uh, how would you say in terms of people sending three tracks, five tracks, what catches your attention? Oh, small. Yeah. I mean, imagine, imagine, imagine how much time we've got. As you rightly say, there's a lot of people sending stuff. We like to, we like to make sure we actually get to it. You know, we want to be respectful of people who are actually taking the time and really want that opportunity. I'm telling you, if the first and second track are no good, it's all a waste of time. Yeah. Because you just can't, it's, it's, you just don't have the window of time to do that. Uh, you've got to capture someone's imagination. We generally, I will generally go, okay, the first track could have just been, you know, a wild card um, and get to the second one. There's nothing interesting in the first segment. You won't get to the third. You can do it in five tracks easily. That should really be the maximum for, from my point of view. For you, do you care if it's organic instruments versus in the box? Does it matter? No, no. I mean, depending on the style of music. I don't want in the box jazz would not be great. Sure. Um, for us, the more experimental and weird, and the more you twist the box for us is more is important. Okay. Um, but you know, I've heard people do some incredible stuff with, 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 and, and the quality of samples nowadays is just—I mean, it's—it's it's, it, even in the last few years has made music more accessible and interesting. Um, but yeah, again, I think you're absolutely right. 
you can get a sense very quickly just skipping through, oh, this guy has a real talent for something. There's something here. There's a depth of production. They're thinking about it. But you've got to do it quick. You've got to nail it quickly. Russell, this has been a lot of fun chatting with you. I just feel uh, I have so many more questions, but I, I feel like for people who are interested, like I said, go to uh, bleedingfingersmusic.com. Extrememusic.com is a great place. Uh, I'm so happy just to see that you guys are doing so well and continuing to uh, put out a lot of great projects. I, I think the, the was the most recent one, Planet Earth, do you think? Uh, well, we've got, uh, there's constantly projects coming on. I mean, we're, um, we're doing the new um, BBC Natural History Unit um, blue chip project which is seven worlds which um there'll be a big announcement this sunday night if you're uh, watching your social media there's a there's a a, a, not a big collaboration that we're about to announce awesome well russell thank you so much it's a pleasure to talk to you and uh congratulations well thank you um all the best you know your podcast is doing great thanks again for tuning in and listening to my chat with russell emmanuel you can hear more conversations with sound designers composers and directors on the soundworks collection podcast on itunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com